Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Uh, Today, we are continuing our mini-series on tax, and we're very fortunate to have managing partner of Bell Howley, Simon Howley, as well as Andrew Thornhill QC with us again. And today, we are going to be discussing all things IHT, or otherwise inheritance tax. So, I don't know, where, where, should, where should we start with this very broad subject? Well, thank you, Rod. What we'll try and cover today, or in this podcast, we're doing another podcast in a few days' time on, again, inheritance tax, but dealing more with trusts and more complex. So, in this podcast, we're going to cover the following topics or talk around them. Transfers of value, uh, main exemptions, lifetime transfers, gifts with benefits, which is important, lifetime exemptions business relief, and then any other topical tax planning tips we can think of. Fantastic. Let's start with transfers of value. People assume that inheritance tax only is triggered on death. That is that is not the case. It can be triggered uh, during your lifetime. And a transfer of value it can be made by any person at any time. So anything that in effect reduces your net estate is a transfer of value before we get onto any, any exemptions. So if you get an example of that for you, Rod, so really um, a gift of, of cash to your son mm-hmm. can be a transfer of value. Gift of a painting can be a transfer of value because, of course, you don't own that asset anymore. So a question for you, Rod. So if I give you an example, yeah. we have a man, we'll call him John. Um, he has five sets of antique vases, okay? Together, they're worth £50,000. He decides to give one of these vases to his son. Mm-hmm. This is worth £5,000. So what do you think is the value he's transferred there? So it's five £5,000 worth of the vase, is that right? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> because before, of course, it, they were worth £50,000. Right, yeah. yeah. As, as a collection. As, as a collection. Yeah, as a collection. So now he's only got left now four of the vases worth £5,000 each, so £20,000. So it's £30,000 to transfer the value. Oh, right. It's okay. more complex than just looking at the yeah. value. Yes, the key, the key thing is it's a loss to the value of the donor's estate. So if you've got a collection and the collection is only worth a lot of money as a whole and you give part away, the diminution in value of your estate could be very large. You get the same principle with a company. Uh, if you own 51% of a company and you gave away 2%, the devaluation of the 51% could be very substantial. So that, that's the key thing. Estate duty used to be a tax on the value of a gift. Inheritance tax is a tax on the diminution of an individual person's estate. There's another interesting thing, isn't there, uh, Simon, which we should bring in at this stage, which is uh, another item in the diminution in the value could be and and is the inheritance tax occasioned by the charge. And that raises a very interesting question, which 
is actually not dealt with exactly anywhere in the inheritance tax legislation. It's this simple question, who pays the tax? Now, you might have thought that that was a pretty simple question. It's either the donor or the donee. And in a sense, it is a simple question, except that if it's a donor, the loss to his estate includes the amount of the tax charged. Whereas if it's a donee, he pays simply on the value uh, of the diminution in the donor's estate. And that raises some very interesting questions. Should you, when you're making a gift, specify who is going to bear the tax? Otherwise, you could end up with a jolly good argument. And the difference, the, the, the answer, it does have a bearing on the amount of the tax. So it sounds like a simple, harmless question. It's actually quite an important one. Yeah. I've, I've just got a quick question on, on that then. So if, um, let's say, I uh, had lent my child £100,000, and instead of actually gifting them £100,000, I wrote off that debt, would the same rules apply then because it's reduced my net estate, essentially? Oh, yes. It's any disposition which reduces the value of a person's estate. And quite clearly, releasing someone from a debt is effectively equivalent to giving them the money. Yeah. It's certainly a disposition. And it is worth bearing in mind that a disposition can include an omission to exercise a right. I mean, I think most people would have said, and in fact, there's an old estate duty case which does say it, that a disposition doesn't include an omission. But for inheritance tax, it does. They were wise to that one. So the fundamental uh, proposition, therefore, it's a tax really on individuals with their estates. Estates are all the property to which you're beneficially entitled. And if you make any disposition which reduces the value of your estate, down comes the drawbridge uh, and you've got to pay the tax based on the diminution in value. I think it's worth adding, isn't it, at this stage, Simon, primary inheritance tax is dealing with individuals and their estates. Yeah. Then you have to have special provisions dealing with trusts, which we won't deal with today because that's the next podcast. But then you also have this. Uh, what about a company? Suppose a company has got assets and the company merrily makes a disposition of its assets. Does the company pay inheritance tax? No, it doesn't. However, what does happen is that the company's transfer of value is apportioned to its participators, normally the shareholders, and they have to pay tax based on how large their shareholding is. So although it's primarily individuals who have estates, where you're dealing with close companies, it wouldn't matter if it's a public company, for example. If it's a close company, that's one with a few shareholders, any disposition by the company can get a portion back to its shareholders. And that's another aspect you've got to bear in mind. It's quite complex. It is quite, but it's easy enough when you get the, the point. The next point I think is very, very important, Simon, and we better deal with this. It tax, the tax is now called inheritance tax, and that dates from 1984, when Mrs. Thatcher 
proudly claimed that she had pulled the teeth of the old capital transfer tax. The capital transfer tax, which is what it was originally called, was introduced in 1975 by the Labour government then in power. And it basically is the same as inheritance tax, but it was a lifetime tax. In other words, you took a cumulative total of all the lifetime transfers made by an individual, added the whole lot up. So as time went on, the uh, tax rate went up and up. What Mrs. Satcher did was two things. She introduced the idea of a 10-year time limit. So the clock started again each time. And in particular, she also introduced the idea of a potentially exempt transfer. That is to say, a transfer of value which did not suffer any tax provided the donor survived for a particular period. And the longer you survived, up to seven years, the more the tax was reduced. So that there is something very important there. It made a major change in 1984 and how the tax worked. And that, I suppose, brings one, Simon, to the first point. If you had a person who was wealthy from a young age, um, then what they should obviously be thinking of doing is making gifts uh, every pe periodically to use up their nil rate band. Um, and and uh, the, after a certain period, they get a new nil rate ban back again, and they can make further gifts. The trouble, of course, is most people don't have the wealth early on in life. They acquire it as time goes on. But if you had inherited wealth, then it's a very obvious course to follow because the nil rate ban, I always forget the amount, it's now pretty substantial, and you get it back periodically over your lifetime. So is, is that period seven years then? Uh, for the pets, yes, it's seven years. Yeah. If you survive after seven years, um, then there's no tax payable. If you unfortunately die in between the effective gift and the seven years, that is taper relief. And I think after, after three years, well, three years and less, it's a full amount is chargeable. Uh, four years, 80% of it is chargeable. Five years, 60. And then down to seven years, 20%. And so PETS stands for Potentially Exempt Transfers. Yes. And there are two kinds, really, I think it's fair to say. One is a disposition in favour of another individual, which increases the value of that individual's estate. Uh, the second can be a gift to a fairly simple trust under which uh, children or grandchildren get the property at the age of 18. Originally, it was a much higher age, but it was, became restricted in 2005, I think. And a lot of people find that the gift to children at 18 is not really something they want to do. It gives people, gives children the money at too early an age. Mm. And, um, but the only alternative is to, is to make them an absolute gift, a gift to another individual. So um, when making pets, you're a bit limited as to what you can do. But uh, anyhow, that's something which is well worth considering if you have sufficient wealth. Simon, what about obvious exemptions? Should we bring those in now? Yeah, just to say that if it is a, if it is a pet, then there must be an increase in the transferees' estate. 
So in effect, yes. the grand, if a grandparent uh, paid for the grandkids' school fees, that's not a pet. There's an effect yeah. the school kids' estate is not get increasing. So Yes, that's a very good point, yes. Um, yeah, so, their, well, their knowledge might increase, but not their estate. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we'll just touch on, on the main exemptions fairly, fairly quickly. So the new rate band is at 325,000 at the moment. Obviously, any that is unused can be carried forward to the spouses. A spouse exemption is just exempts. Um, that's all lifetime. And that's everything. That's no limit on that. Yeah. There's absolutely no limit on that. And so the fundamental simple advice to most people is equalise your estates between mm-hmm. you and your spouse or civil partner. Of course, the main handicap is that some people get very worried if the state of their marriage is not very good, that um, they may regret making the transfer. But Mm. in a a happy marriage, it's the most sensible course of action. So there's also the residence nil rate band, which is £175,000. So that's basically obviously attached to, it must be your main residence at some point, must also pass to a direct descendant. So uh, stepchildren, kids who are adopted, cannot benefit from that. Yes, that's important. Uh, and gifts to charities, um, another important one, and also death on active service as well is, is fully exempt. So what, just going back to the resident nil rate band, what is the um, upper limit value? Uh, £175,000. So that's for, your, that's for your own home, is that? Yes. So in effect, if you add that to... Your nil rate band, it's half a million pounds. Mm-hmm. But jointly with your wife, of course, you get a million pounds. But... Okay, right. Yes, it's a very it's important like... exemption. The legislation conferring it is infernally complicated, but uh, the, the general effect is as Simon has stated. Because one of my questions was, is that on top of the 325 grand allowance so it is yes because i i always thought there was a a, i had a million pounds in my head so it must be that it's when you're you with along with your partner yes if you add together your partner's no right band and then a resident under under residence in your right band you get a million pound okay so and that's based on and that's obviously based on the equity in the property so if the property is mortgaged um, obviously, the the it's a net mortgage. the net value that matters. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So if you've got a one point five million pound property and your it's got a five hundred thousand pound mortgage on, then you can leave that all, and then obviously the uh, the person who's uh, who's inheriting it will then be uh, entitled to the total amount of equ- of net equity. Of the equity, yes, yeah. yes. And yeah. Of course, we're assuming here that your spouse is UK domiciled as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's very important. If the spouse is non-domiciled, it doesn't apply. Could we just quickly just run over the lifetime transfers again? So that's just, it resets every seven years, am I right in that, just for the pets? Yeah. But are there, what other kind of lifetime transfers could are there or could there be? Well, some are chargeable. So if obviously, if, if you make a transfer to um, a company, uh, mm-hmm. transfer to a trust, with the exception, of course, of, of uh, trust for bear trusts or for charities or people who are disabled, because they're going to be pets. Yeah, so they're chargeable. They're normally charged at the half the death rate, so 20%. Okay. Of course, the death rate normally is 40%. 40, yes. yes. So there's a huge incentive, if you can, to give away during your lifetime and survive. 
so my next question is, is there an age limit? Because obviously we spoke about people want to gift it, give certain things to their children at 18. Yes. Is there an, is there a, uh, an age limit that children need to be over a certain age in, in, in which to receive lifetime whilst people are alive to receive any 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 there's no there's no particular age limit no i mean you could give it to a child of two if you wanted yeah. to on the other hand you have to be careful because um in the case of very young persons say under 10 they may not be capable if you like of understanding what it is they're being given well exactly of course, there's nothing to stop you giving property to a, a trustee for your infant child, and, and that would be perfectly effective, or okay. could be perfectly effective. Great, thank you. We'll touch on now, I think, on, on gifts with reservation of benefits. Yes, we'll do uh, that. Because I think that, that's quite important. People have this concept that if they, if they give something away, then it's, not, it's no longer in their estate again. Well, that is not the case. If you retain any kind of benefits or any kind of enjoyment of the asset, so, for example, a simple example, if you gifted a, a picture to your son, uh, a piece of artwork, but you kept the artwork in your house to, to, to view and enjoy, it never left your estate in the first place. So, yeah. so for our audience, obviously, that are heavily property real estate biased, I suppose. Yes. If, one, one example I can think of here is if you uh, wanted to gift your home then to your children, during your lifetime but still wanted to see some problems with that and maybe sell and and lease back well unless you're actually you would that wouldn't be leased back because you're, you wouldn't pay them anything but are there any things to consider with that does capital gains tax maybe jump in there at all if if, if that was the case well, if you get a property anyway, and you retain the enjoyment of that, again, for, for IHT purposes, never left your estate, mm-hmm. you would also trigger, it's a slightly different subject, which is a pre-owned assets tax, income tax charge. Right. Uh, on yeah. that. So, you know, you, 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 it has to be an outright gift. Okay. Okay. You can have some incidental enjoyment. So say if, if, if you gifted... Um, um, and a sports car, a British sports car, and maybe you sat in it for one day a year, that would be incidental. But if you yeah. drove it most weekends to see your friends, it's still your asset. The property here is particularly difficult. I mean, you can do some simple things. You could give away a property and still live in it, provided you paid a market rent. If you didn't pay a market rent, there would be a benefit reserved. No, then people, then people said, well, hang on a second. Why can't I carve my property into little bits? I'll give away the freehold but retain a lease. And at one stage that worked. But of course, it was too obvious an avoidance route. So various provisions came in which stopped it. And it's now become a fairly complex matter. Uh, One thing I think is true there, isn't it, Simon? If you were willing, well, you probably wouldn't want to pay the SDLT. If you sold um, a reversion to a lease to your family and kept the lease, uh, that would be uh, an efficient way of dealing with matters. But then probably, A, you might have capital gains tax, and B, you would certainly have stamp duty land tax. So it perhaps wouldn't be as attractive as it might have been at one stage. Yes, yeah. 
So that would have to be a, a longer term lease because I know there's new rules that have come in. And, uh, well, I think it was around 2014. But you can't have a lease for life. That's one thing. No. If you have a lease for life, it's treated as though it's creating a settlement and it's a disaster. Um, but you could have a lease for a specified period. For example, you might say, look, I'm 80. Um, I'll sell my property subject to a lease for 25 years. And you reckon by the time you're 105, you'll either be dead or not living in the house. So that uh, that would work. Because there's, I know there's rules on sale and rent back for residential properties where they um, essentially outlawed that. Uh, because I know people were taking advantage. Well, I know that was they paid a market rent. Yeah, that was more. The market rent could be quite high. Mm, mm. So I'm not sure if that if that would come into it. I if... don't think most people wouldn't really see any attraction in that. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. there are things you can do though. I mean, for example, suppose you own the freehold of your house. And it's a very large house and you have, let's say, a son who's married and a family and they'd like to live in the house with you. Um, you could give them a share in the house and retain an interest in the other share, which entitles you to stay in the house or part of it, whereas they enjoy the rest. That, subject to one or two complexities, does actually work quite well, doesn't it, Simon? Yes, I mean, you could even, an example, you could even say if, if, if you gifted your house to your children and then for some unfortunate reason you had an accident or became infirmed and you had to return to the premises, that wouldn't be of benefit. So that wouldn't be triggered because it's exceptionally And obviously this is really for anything over what's in the residential nil rate band and the... Um, well, that's true, but then of course, otherwise you take that up. now um, are well above that limit, and yeah. that, that's the difficulty. Yeah, exactly, especially with properties in sort of London and things like that. that people yes, have. yes. Yeah. Now, I think inheritance tax on family houses is quite a subject on its own. Mm. There's a lot of avoidance uh, legislation, and there are one or two fairly straightforward routes through. But apart from that, you've got to be extremely careful. And I think we're, we're, we're due to do a podcast on family. family I think, homes, I, I think that, that, that yeah. will be a, the subject matter of a later one, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's touch on a part of it which Andrew brought up earlier, which is normal expenditure out of income. So these are lifetime exemptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll just go, go through the, the basic ones, which obviously... You get a two thousand annual exemption. You can give make gifts a year. Small gifts of two fifty pounds a year. Marriage five thousand pounds for parents. Two and a half thousand pounds for grandparents. Thousand pounds for other. Um, obviously, maintenance of your family is exempt. So, so shopping, food shopping, uh, education, maintenance of children under eighteen years of age, um, and of course, if you have any dependent relatives, also if you have a reasonable provision for them again that is also going to be exempt for example if you rent yeah. accommodation for them um, i'm not sure if you bought a property for them and stuck it in their name that would be viewed as reasonable but normally if you just rent somewhere that's perfectly fine but obviously if you there's an exemption also if you expenditure out of normal income so if you habitually uh, say give your son ten thousand pounds a year that's perfectly fine uh, you can demonstrate that if you uh, if you buy a brother or sister, a new car every three years, that again is perfectly fine. Or if you pay for your nephew's school fees, this again is expenditure out of normal income. So it's not going to be triggered um, any 
I you, you've got to show, haven't you, that um, you've got enough income left to support your lifestyle. But then that, that, with a person with a large income, that's easy enough. It's also quite handy, that particular exemption, isn't it, for insurance, gifts of insurance policies, because the, the regular payment of the premiums uh, could well rank as normal expenditure out of income. And in fact, Simon, there's quite a valuable concession or semi-concession there on the part of the revenue, isn't there? If you start paying the premiums, even though you only pay one of them, but you intended to pay more, but maybe died, they'll treat it as normal expenditure out of income from day one. So uh, if, for example, you set up um, some kind of endowment policy for your children and you pay premiums on it regularly, you could ultimately transfer to them a very large sum of money. But it could all be done by way of normal expenditure out of income. And that could be a very valuable disposition in favour of your family. And on, on that, is there any clear guidance as to how um you define habitual so do you have to be paying it every year like you said if you're buying your brother a car every three years i mean how many times do you have to have shown that to be the case would it be well well, not if if you're relying on the exemption pure and simple you'd have to show the regularity so if you once you bought your brother one car, you'd be some difficulty. Yeah. But as I say, with insurance policies, where you enter into the arrangement to pay the premiums, they'll treat it as normal expenditure from day one. So that's quite useful. Yeah, because you essentially you're contracted to continue. Yes, you may not have contracted to do it, but I mean, you're committed really because yeah. it wouldn't make sense to do it unless you wanted to carry on doing it long term. Mm-hmm. So these are bit income not out of capital so not out of savings or so that's yeah. yes yes uh, it doesn't actually matter physically what, what you pay the uh, make the payment out of but uh, you perform a sort of national exercise where you look at your income after tax and see whether you've got enough income left after you've made the gifts which you're claiming to be normal expenditure to support your lifestyle now now you mentioned um one thing simon on say an uncle paying for his nephew's school fees um i think a a big point to say is it's obviously about reducing someone's net uh, net estate rather than um someone benefiting which we kind of went through before would that still be the same case with your own children if you're um if you're paying their school fees is there ever a chance that that could ever be seen no, no, that's maintenance, we, which, remember, Simon covered uh, maintenance expenditure family. and that sort of expenditure within the immediate family would be exempt anyhow. Brilliant. And then, and then just, just to continue on your um, point on endowments, and I know this might be going off down at a, another yeah. tangent, um, but that, that sounds like it might be quite a sensible thing to do if you're trying to save for your children's school fees for secondary school or even university or something like that because you can start to pay into that and it could be seen as a gift would that be the case yeah, that, that it would be an exempt transfer yes although uh, and you could certainly do that and you might i mean you might cash in the policy to pay school fees but, but hang on if you pay the school fees it's maintenance maintenance sorry yeah but it might be more handy to keep it there so that they have a deposit to buy a house for example 
um, shortly after they've uh, left university. And mm. that would be an effective transfer because you would have made it free of tax using normal expenditure out of income, whereas a straight gift of the deposit would be um, a, a, a lifetime gift. Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you. Now moving on to the complex issue of business property. So there are reliefs which give full exemption from IHT if the property fits a certain criteria. Uh, it's not going to be in the following group. So dealing in securities, stocks and shares, land and building, uh, investments, assets, uh, with the exception of a holding group of a, of a, of a trading group. And that's what is the intention to make a profit is very important. Uh, and therefore, it's normally a trading activity. So that comes back to the business property relief that we discussed in the last podcast, does it? Yeah. Yes, yes. I, mean, I think um, the most important point is that as the law currently stands, there is an opportunity to hide non-business assets within what is predominantly a trading group of companies. How long that will last is a matter of debate. In fact, there's been some uh, inkling of that the law will be changed. But at the moment, it's a very valuable exemption. And as, as, as Simon said, business property relief is either at 100% or 50%. It's quite arbitrary. For example, if you were in a factory, which is used by your company, you only get 50% relief, don't you? You're better off putting the factory in the company because then the whole thing gets 100%. Mm. On the other hand, and this is where life becomes complex, it's sometimes a good idea to keep the factory outside the company because you could sell it and take the cash. Whereas if it's in the company, um, it may qualify for business property relief, but when you sell it, you can't get the money out. And this is where you always find in tax planning, there's pluses and minuses, and they need to be carefully explored before you go and do something. Yeah, so it's important, of course, to just to highlight the when it says wholly or mainly uh, trading activity, it normally means uh, more than 50%. Correct, absolutely, yes. The key thing. Me- measured in terms partly of assets, partly of profits, and partly of time and attention devoted to the relevant activity. Yeah, there's a good, there's a good, good tax case, which is uh, farmer versus farmer. Mr. Farmer was actually a farmer, where he he developed some outbuildings um, and rented them out for uh, uh, cottages. So in in effect, he 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 could demonstrate that most of his activity, his time of him, his employees, um, and his general um, profits were generated still from the farm. Yes, yes, that was his main interest. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's a very valuable um, point to make with business property relief. The other thing, of course, with business property relief, you have to have owned the business property for two years. That's important. You can't just acquire a business and say, lo and behold, I've now got business property relief. However, one little planning point is worth mentioning, I think, Simon. If you own shares in a company and you've owned them for there might be some sense in getting the company to buy a business. How do you put the money in? You have a rights issue. If you have a rights issue, you're treated as owning the right shares for the same period as you own the original shares. 
so you qualify for business property relief immediately in those circumstances. Now, that could be quite an important deathbed scheme. It, certainly, I've seen it used. Uh, you've got business assets within the family. One of the family members is very ill, but he's owned a company for a long time. So he exchanges non-business assets, the business assets, which he puts in the company using the rights issue that I've just described. And you have saved inheritance tax immediately. And that can be very valuable. Yeah, very interesting point. So, so we've covered most of the main points in this podcast. Do you have any other tips for planning, Andrew? Or Well, I think one thing we haven't mentioned very much about, but it is important, is uh, there are two things, really. First of all, giving away assets is all very well during your lifetime. But of course, if you've got to pay capital gains tax, it's not so attractive. And the rules here are quite interesting business property or farming property gets an, a marvelous advantage because you can, as it said, hold over the capital gain when you make the gift. So you don't pay tax on the gain. Mind you, your beneficiary will take that gain on in due course. So if, if he realizes again, he'll have to pay the tax. Nevertheless, holding over the gain enables you to do things in your lifetime without paying inheritance tax because it's a pet and without paying capital gains tax. Equally, if you give something away and it is a chargeable transfer, so it counts against your, um, your nil rate band, if it is a chargeable transfer, you can also hold over the gain under another section of the Capital Gains Tax Act. So that could become quite attractive. In other words, it, it's something which doesn't stop you giving away assets during your lifetime. And then um, you, you, mentioned, you yes. mentioned that's just for farm, farming. Now, if it's farming or business, you've got an absolute right to hold over the gain, provided the gift is made to someone else who's resident. And that's under another section of the Capital Gains Tax Act. If it isn't what business or property, you have a different holdover where the gift itself is a chargeable transfer. Yeah, section 260, I think. From 260, that's right, 260 of the TCGA. That's right. The other point which I think is worth mentioning is, number one, although having property in a company is not the best idea of all times because you've always got the difficulty of getting it out. One advantage of a company, if it's a private one, is that by se separating out minority holdings, you actually lose value. The, 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 the value of the shares bears no relation to the underlying value of the company. So in some situations where you want the family wealth to go marching on from generation to generation, there's something to be said for having a company and losing the value. I think the other thing which I would mention, I think we touched on it in the last podcast, is you can, of course, create different kinds of assets. You can create assets which, for example, take all the future capital growth but don't enjoy the current income. In the case of a family business, for example, 
the shares which take control of a company, say, for the next 20 years and carry the right to all the dividends will take up virtually the whole value of the business. If you then create a class of share which only takes that value in 20 years' time, those shares will be worth very little. So if you give away those shares, you could um, make a gift now of an extremely low value, but which in due course will confer enormous benefits on the donees. And that sort of planning is well worth thinking about. The same applies, I think we've said this before, Simon, to things like insurance policies, where if you take a single premium policy, you can keep the right to make tax-free surrenders, but give away the surplus residual value of the policy. Again, that's very advantageous, because by, by keeping the right to make the tax-free, to receive the tax-free payments for 20 years, you are retaining an extraordinarily valuable right, and the future value of the policy beyond that may be very low. So it's always worth thinking, can you divide assets up into present value and future value ones, keep the present value and give away the future value? That lies at the heart of quite a lot of successful inheritance tax planning. I, I, I touched on the, on the point regarding um, creating new share classes in my article, Rod, on, on LinkedIn I published at the weekend. Yeah, and I'll, I'll make sure I put a put a link on on that one here. Yeah, yes. And actually, I've got a I've got a point on that. So, when gifting those future shares, yes. And I and maybe we're drifting into the next podcast about trust. But is there yeah. is there a major difference um, or anything to be aware of between gifting those shares to family members or into a trust? Well, the first thing, of course, is that. Um, it, it will be a pet if you give it to family members. If you give it to a trust, unless it's this rather narrow, limited trust in favour of children at the age of 18, it will be an immediately chargeable transfer. Now, that may not matter if the value of the shares you're giving away is very low. It doesn't matter. Um, on the other hand, if, if the shares are valuable, it will. I think that's the first point. Obviously, in some cases, the shares may, in any event, qualify for business property relief. If that's the case, you can give them to quite a complex, long-lasting trust, which might be far more up uh, uh, according to your wishes. Um, the other thing I would just say, with future value shares, it does depend on the nature of the business, how the value divides up. People have tried to apply the concept of growth shares to, for example, property investment companies. But there, the value of the future growth is likely to be much more valuable now because the right to the income and control of the property for, say, 20 years doesn't really exhaust a great deal of the value of the underlying properties. With a trading company, it will, because who knows whether the trade will be the same in 20 years' time. It probably would have changed completely. So mm -hmm. it's horses for courses. What works for one kind of company doesn't necessarily work for another. Very, very, very interesting, yeah. You'll also need, obviously, if you could think about that kind of planning, you'll need to have a professional valuation done. 
um, mm. which is very important. Uh, and of course, then also I mentioned in my in my LinkedIn article all of the uh, legal issues we'd ha- have in the Arts Association re- rewritten to show the share rights and and so on. So it's a bit more complex than just the IHT aspect. And, yeah. and obviously, if any of the properties are mortgaged, then we go back to the old point that we had on the last podcast oh, about yeah. making sure the mortgage company is uh, is okay with with that. Yes, I mean, the, the, by and large, what you don't want to do is have to renegotiate all the mortgages. You mm. may not get the same mortgage again. Yeah. We haven't mentioned anything about employee ownership, have we? I mean, uh, perhaps that's a special subject, but it is worth saying that although employee benefit trusts and employee share ownership trusts have received a bit of a bad name, Nevertheless, there are, if you want to keep a family trading company going and you've got some employees who are, know, know, their, know the business well and can be trusted to carry it on, there's some very valuable lifetime exemptions for employee benefit trusts or employee share ownership trusts. And there have, I think, been one or two very prominent recent examples. I think it was Richard Sands, where mm. the proprietor gave away the lion's share of a very valuable company to his employees, and thus saving the, future, the, the company for the future indefinitely. And these are exemptions which, in the appropriate case, are very worthwhile looking at. Maybe we can touch on that maybe in the next podcast. Yes, that's right. More to come. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, well, that's so are we, Bradley. Um, is that, is that, does that bring us to an end, do you think, Simon? I think on, on this particular podcast, yeah, I think we've covered, obviously, in a, in a very broad brush approach, most of the things uh, we set out to do. Uh, and the next one we'll do mainly trust-related IHC planning. So we'll be mainly just, well, just on trusts. Okay, right, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, uh, look forward to that. Thank you very much. Okay. Fantastic, thank you very much. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast. <laughs>